this morning's person. Now then, this segment of this morning's person provides us an opportunity to go off piste. Uh, and here's a quick question first. What key knowledge would humanity need to start rebuilding civilization from scratch? Let's say, if our world was to disappear or suddenly decay. Um, what does detecting alien life on planets outside our solar system mean for those of us living on Earth? These are a couple of questions that have been examined by Lewis Dartnell, award-winning science writer, looking into microbial life at the UK Space Agency, recently visited this country as well. Great to have you on the line. Thank you very much for having me. So, um, your research focuses on alien life. I suppose life in South Korea was pretty mundane by comparison with uh, <laughs> urban London as well. Yeah, so my, my research field is astrobiology, which is all about looking at the possibility of life beyond the Earth. So I, I focus on the chance of microbial life, of, of hardy bacteria surviving on the Martian surface and how we could detect that life with our next generation of Mars rovers. What, what kind of signs of life would we go hunting for? The very fact that uh, you're doing this research suggests that you suspect it exists. Uh, would that be fair to say? <laughs> well, yeah, I've kind of, kind of bet my career on, on that possibility, at least, yeah. And, and this is microbial life, so it's not quite as exciting as the um, you know, green men from outer space, but uh, t try to explain to us why that would be just as exciting, a discovery of something we wouldn't be able to see with the naked eye. Yeah, exactly. So we're not talking about green bug-eyed monsters um, or UFOs kind of descending down onto the White White House lawn. And what we're focusing on with astrobiology now is, like I say, trying to detect bacteria on Mars or maybe signs of life on Earth-like planets orbiting other suns in our galaxy, other, other stars in the night sky. And even if we don't you know, find kind of complex life, the kind of life you could have a conversation with, the kind of life that we're familiar with from sci-fi films. I still think finding life on Mars would be a, you know, a fundamental discovery. We'd learn that the Earth isn't unique, that we're not alone in this cosmos, and there is biology, there is life on other planets. And for me, the, the really exciting thing would be if, if we do find life on Mars, even if it's only bacteria, and we then get to study it uh, in our labs back on Earth and, and, and pretty much just find out how it's built, find out how that life is alien in, in a truly fundamental sense, whether it works in the same way as, as our cells work or if it uses something other than DNA, for example. Mm. What about the danger that we may have introduced m microbial matter to Mars, for example, or anywhere else with all of our uh, satellites, probes and other things we've sent out there? Well, this is, this is a problem, and when we take that risk of contamination very seriously, and essentially anything we send to Mars, but particularly to the regions where we think that life could exist, that it could survive, so areas where it looks like there's uh, the chance of liquid water near the surface, um, we, we, we essentially sterilize or clean our probes as, as well as we possibly can before we send them to, to the Martian surface. Because I guess the, the most embarrassing thing imaginable 
would be to have this what we think is a very exciting discovery and announce it to newspapers around the world and then realize that oh no sorry it was you know one of the lab technicians sneezed on the uh, on the probe before we mm. sent it we just found our our own muck so there's um there's a program called planetary protection where we try to make as certain as we can that we're not sending any hitchhikers to mars with our probes we're not sending any terrestrial earth-like earthly bacteria to mars when we're, when we're searching for life you know, Professor Stephen Hawking uh, recently drew headlines again with the, the claim that we should uh, probably stop trying to search for uh, intelligent life anyway uh, outside of uh, our own planet, suggesting that uh, it uh, could be too late once we find them, that they might not, not necessarily be so friendly. That's obviously a very different kind of life that we're talking about, but how realistic is it, do you think, that there is actually intelligent life, maybe even more intelligent than ourselves? Well, I'm not sure I agree with, with Stephen Hawking on that. I think that if, if there were intelligent life out there, nearby to us in the galaxy, they would already know about us, whether we're trying to directly contact them or not. And I think there's good reasons to also argue that if there were an intelligent, uh, advanced alien civilization out there, the last thing on the mind would be trying to wipe us out and there's no good reason to suspect they'd want to come and harvest humanity for food or suck up the Earth's oceans or, you know, all of these tropes that we see in, in sci-fi films again. I, I think they're that, they're sci-fi. And yeah. the science doesn't really back them up. So I, I certainly don't lose sleep over, you know, an alien invasion force arriving on the Earth to, to try to steal and uh, invade, invade us or steal things yeah. from the Earth. Uh, and to but be... I mean... And to be fair to Professor Hawking, I mean, it was more that he was saying we should be wary of answering back if we received a signal from a planet like Gliese 832c. That's one of the planets that they say could uh, harbour life. It's 16 light years away. Um, how many light years are we away from the technology to actually find out? Well, I mean, the exciting thing with astrobiology is we are right on top of that technological capability now. And this is why it's a very exciting time for me to be working in astrobiology. We've come leaps and bounds in just the last 10, 15 years. And we've made huge advances in, you know, sophisticated robotic technology that's enabled us to explore Mars. We're, we're finding life in incredible environments on our own planet that, that previously thought would, would be impossible mm. for life to survive. And as you mentioned, we're finding more and more Earth-like worlds orbiting other suns in our galaxy. So it's very much the golden age of astrobiology right now. And the hope, the expectation is that it, it could be our generation, it could be people alive today that first make that realization that there is things out there that, uh, like I said before, we're not alone in the galaxy. Um, during your visit to Korea, you talked about how to rebuild civilizations after Earth's destruction in, in your book the knowledge. Um, so do you also see that as being inevitable? And can you just address a little bit of what you decided to write about there? Uh, so alongside my academic scientific research, I do a lot of science communication and, and telling people about science and, and writing and, and writing books. And the idea behind my most recent uh, popular science book, The Knowledge, How to Rebuild a World from Scratch, uh, is, is a thought experiment. And let's just imagine for the sake of argument, that tomorrow uh, there's some kind of global catastrophe, some kind of apocalypse, and civilization collapses and the vast majority of humanity dies. 
but you find yourself in a, in a community of survivors, of post-apocalyptic survivors. And the question now is, well, what would you most need to know? What would be the most useful science and technology from throughout human history, from 10,000 years of us developing in the first place, that you would want to have preserved, that you don't want to have lost to history, so you could reboot civilization again? And I, I, I obviously don't think the world is about to end. And that's, that's just the conceit for the book, I think, as a way of exploring all of the kind of behind-the-scenes fundamentals of how our world works and all the things we just take for granted nowadays. I thought a really good way of exploring all of that was to imagine that it just disappeared. And so you had to know how to recover all of that again. And that's what I've done in, in, in the pages of the knowledge is, is look back through history at the, the huge advances we've made. You know, it's kind of a, a hymn to human ingenuity mm. uh, and progress and, and just exploring all these different areas of, uh, of capability and, and where things come from and, and how they're made and how they're done. Uh, just so that like, I hope that people that read this book just appreciate it all the more. Uh, all we've got going for us in our, in our modern world. Yeah, but you were also here in Korea to talk about Jigji, the uh, the world's oldest book printed with movable metal type, which is uh, a totally different area of of interest. But I guess also plays into this kind of technology that we'd want to carry forward. Yeah. So, so one of the key technologies I pick out in the knowledge is the, the way that you can share human thoughts, human ideas. And the, the crucial development in that was the, the printing press, the, the movable metal type. And it's, it's commonly thought that Gutenberg and Germany did that first. But, but of course, it was Korea. It was Koreans, Korean monks that first invented movable metal type for printing with. So when I came out to uh, Korea for the Jikji Festival that, that celebrates that first printed book, I was, you know, totally bowled over. This is about the most exciting thing I remember doing in recent years, was having the chance of, of doing that for myself. And I worked with a Korean master, and he showed me how to go through the process of uh, making the sand cast from the molds of different letters and then pouring in the molten metal and preparing the type that you get out of that. So I saw that whole process from beginning to end of how you make those little pieces of letters, those little pieces of metal type, which is what you need for mass-producing human thought and, and ideas. Mm. That's the whole basis of, of printing. So that, that was an enormous amount of, of fun for me when I was on my trip around Korea. Well, Professor Dartnell, thank you so much for continuing to open your mind and open many other minds <laughs> in the process. Thank you. Radio that matters. Every morning with this morning. It's 8.56 and we've reached the last of our shows before Christmas. Actually, this is the first time that I've been working at TBS EFM that Christmas has fallen on a weekend. So I won't be broadcasting live on Christmas Day, but I'll be really looking forward to speaking with you on Boxing Day, the day after Christmas, and I want to wish everyone a fantastic weekend, whatever you get up to. Remember the central theme of love after weeks of waiting often for presents, but the period of Advent means many people wait for much more, comes bursting forth of joy and love. See if you can hold that in your heart over the next couple of days. We'll see you Monday, 7.05, Careerscape with Kardashian next, after your news headlines with Rosine Park.